He wakes them early, when it's still dark outside, a foretaste of when he will have to wake them again in Jerusalem some weeks from now. They eat a simple breakfast quickly, and then they leave once the dawn has begun to break and it's light enough for them to see where they're going. Getting to the base of the mountain isn't difficult, but it takes some time to get there. And again, more time to find the path that will lead them up. Thankfully, the sun has risen a little higher in the sky. Together, they find their way. They don't talk much in the early part of that day's journey. The path is narrow and steep, and they need to concentrate in order to find their footing. Jesus goes first, with Peter behind him. Peter, Peter is still ruminating on Jesus' rebuke from last week. Things had changed for him pretty quickly, from being the one who was supposed to be able to bind things on earth that would remain bound in heaven, to all of a sudden, Jesus calling him Satan, saying that he was a hindrance. When he thinks about all that Jesus has said is about to happen in Jerusalem, Peter doesn't know what to do. He's so scared. He wants to stop it all before it takes place. He wants for there to be another way. (laughs) Of course he does. The brothers follow at a distance in the companionable silence that comes of each knowing the other as well as they know themselves. What they hear for most of that day is the sound of their feet taking the next step, the sound of their own breath, the sound of the birds as they sing. When they get to the top, it seems like they could see forever. All of Caesarea Philippi, of course, but also the Jordan and the Galilee and the wide, wide ocean off in the distance. But they have not come to the top of this mountain in order to admire the view. They've come to pray, he reminds them. So each of them finds a place. They settle in. They close their eyes. None of the three is really sure if they're praying or asleep, which is a thing that happens for them sometimes, but suddenly they are all very much awake. The light is more than daylight, and it's not coming from the sun. It's coming from Jesus. His face is radiating light. His face, his whole self is blazing with it. His clothes, which had been dusty from the trail, are now a brighter white than anything that they have ever seen. It hurts to look at him. It hurts more to look away. And it's not just him now, but also Moses and also Elijah. And none of this makes sense in a way that you can think it through. But they're here with him. They're here. And Moses and Elijah are in some kind of conversation with Jesus. It's like someone pulled tight the thread of time and stitched this moment all together so that past and present and future all touch. Peter 
knows exactly what to do because Peter. It's so good that we're here, he says. If you want, I'll make three dwellings. Is he still speaking? Poor Peter. His words get swallowed up as the cloud overshadows them all. It's bright, like the light that had blazed out of Jesus. But this cloud is also thick, and they're all inside of it, and they can't see each other. They can't hear anything until they all hear the voice. This is my beloved, God says, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor writes, once you emerge from the cloud, you are supposed to be surer than ever of what you believe. You are supposed to know who's who and what's what and where you are going in your life and why. You are supposed to have all the answers to all of the important questions. And when you read the Bible, you are supposed to know what it means. You have your Christian decoder ring, she writes. Now use it. But what if the point is not to decode that cloud, but to enter it? Matthew's gospel tells us that the disciples are filled with awe, and they fall on their faces when they hear God's voice in the cloud. But Jesus comes to them. He touches them. He tells them to stand up. He tells them, again, not to be afraid. Moses and Elijah are gone at that point. Only Jesus remains. Together, they walk down the way that they had come. As they do, he tells them not to tell anybody about what they've seen until after. What would they even say, they wonder? How would they describe what they just experienced? Today marks our shift toward the season of Lent as we bury our alleluias and enjoy whatever last bits of feasting we have between now and Tuesday night. Wednesday will bring ashes, the remembrance that we are dust, and to dust we will return with 40 days to contemplate and pray. I don't believe that any season of our church year can be broken down to its constituent parts and comprehended and explained, and surely not Lent among them. Lent is wandering and wilderness. It is concentrating on the narrow path before you so you don't stumble, and it's picking yourself up and continuing on when you do. It is climbing a mountain to look for a place to pray. It's listening for the voice of God. It's entering the cloud. In the days to come, Jesus will set his face toward Jerusalem, and his disciples will follow. He will teach as they go and preach and heal people. He will welcome children. He will navigate conversations with the Pharisees as they try to trip him up. He will take on the religious leaders and they will make a plan to kill him. He will tell his disciples where he is going and what is about to happen. They will be very, very afraid. 
He will keep going. Sometimes things get really scary before they get holy. Are the disciples surer than ever about what they believe on the other side of that cloud? Do they know who is who and what is what and where they are going in life and why? Do they have the answers to all those important questions? Do they know what all this means? The rule in my systematic theology class in seminary was that the word mystery was reserved for the last five minutes of class. For the first 45 minutes, our job was to strive with both curiosity and thoughtfulness. Our professor expected that we would ask good questions and draw upon what we had learned from the wisdom of the theologians we were studying. She challenged us to find language for God's work in creation and the realities of suffering and evil and the presence of chaos and loss. But those last five minutes, well, that was the time when it was permissible to reply that ultimately we cannot comprehend God, that the magnitude of the divine will always be greater than we can ask or imagine, that in the end, God is a beautiful mystery. Perhaps the last Sunday after the Epiphany shares something in common with those last five minutes of my theology class. The mystery of that bright cloud, the voice of God telling them to listen, the journey down the mountain toward the passion. Perhaps it can be ours to encounter today rather than to comprehend. Indeed, it is good for us to be here. As we set our faces toward these next 40 days, know that we do it together with light enough to find our way, our fellow disciples' footsteps to follow, and the voice of Jesus who reaches out to us and touches us, tells us again one more time, do not be afraid. Amen.